and welcome to a podcast with Underground Ramblings. I am Gwen and with me today is Nadia. This episode is with Becca Lawson, who has had over 30 years of experience as a caver. She started out caving with Cambridge University and has since done a lot of caving in the UK as well as abroad. In this interview, we're going to be talking to Becca about her first expedition to the Lozer Plateau, where she really went in without much experience and developed from there. We're also going to talk about one of her more challenging expeditions to Abkhazia, where she caved with the Russians. Becca has also completed all 50 of the Not for the Faint-Hearted Black Book trips, and we're going to talk about her journey through that, as well as her exploration in the UK, specifically in the three-county system. So let's get started. Hi, Becca. Thank you for joining us today. We're really excited to have you on. So if you could talk us through how you got into caving, that would be great. Um, so I come from Cumbria in the northwest of England. Um, so there's lots of walking and mountains and that kind of thing. Um, but the lads that I kind of hang up with were quite interested in the local mines near us so there were copper mines near Coniston and um, iron ore mines and we would go down there and just mess around and have no idea what we were doing like slide down a bit of rope and I remember my mum getting like a bit pissed off with all these bright red clothes that I come back with like completely covered in bright red mud and I think also slightly worried about what we were doing, which is probably a good move. But instead of just like saying, don't do it, she rang up um, this guy in Furnace, Eric Holland, who'd written a book on the, the mines and asked him if it was safe. And he said, yeah, 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 they probably won't hurt themselves. So we just got on with it. So yeah, so I messed around in mines, but um, there's no real caves near where I was. So I got into caving properly when I went as an undergraduate to Cambridge and discovered that Cambridge is unbelievably flat and boring and a long way from anywhere beautiful. And I was really missing the mountains that I'd been brought up around. So I just looked for ways of getting into the mountains like on weekends. So I joined the cavers because the climbing looked like not my scene, but the caving I loved and I just loved being away from Cambridge. I'm not selling Cambridge, am I? It's, it's rubbish. <laughs> don't don't ever get a job in the southeast. Uh, so when did you start getting into expeditions and exploratory caving? Um, so I was really lucky. It's just like one of these happenstance things, isn't it? I guess like you fall into caving, and I could have fallen into climbing or or walking or something similar, but it just happened that my club had. And did expedition caving so since 1976 they'd had um, an expedition most years to Austria um, they'd found it like they just had some random carload of undergrads gone on a summer holiday driving around sort of looking for caves but also just hanging out on in lakes and eating ice creams and they'd spotted in what looked like a good caving area with like lots of limestone, um, an area where you could drive up to the top of the mountain. So it had um, uh, an access road because it was used as a ski resort in the, the winter. And that's this area in Austria that they, they chose in the Totenskoberga. And so when I got 
to Cambridge, that there was this kind of um, idea that you went on expedition and, and they got a location and they got the kind of connections to ha have access. But the previous year, there hadn't been an expedition because uh, there'd been some like really strong cavers from Cambridge who'd gone for many years and, and got like really keen on deep caving. But in the early 80s, they, they pretty much felt like they'd um, finished the area because in those days, caving was all about going like really deep. So they'd started at the top of the mountain and they'd found caves that went all the way to a sump at the bottom that were, they reckoned was, or was for measuring, the same level as the lake outside. So it was as low as you were going to get without diving. And so as far as they were concerned, that was like it. You'd finished the area because you know what more could you you do um and that's just like changed now so people now are much more into like systematically looking at everything and looking at the whole connections and what we know now is that some of the longest and most exciting and complicated caves in the world are in Austria these mega systems and the one the one I'm talking about now is is well over 100 kilometers but that wasn't what they were into so they'd kind of stopped going so when i went on my first year to the austria expedition it was almost like nobody had ever been there before because we only had like one guy who'd been out before and he hadn't really taken much in the way of notes i don't think so he didn't really know where the caves were. He wasn't really very sure what surveying was about. It wasn't the world's greatest rigor. And we were all like worse, like we had no idea. So in a way it was really good because it was fun and it was like a holiday and we didn't have like massive expectations. And it wasn't like, some expeditions can be a little bit, a bit like doing a job. <laughs> You've got like all this, paperwork all these you know things you're supposed to write up your log reports and your survey data and i don't know there's like very rigid ideas about how you rig a cave and we just had no idea so you just bumbled around trying to work it out and so it was like half holiday half expedition we went on toboggan runs and we like did pedalos in the lake and that kind of thing but we got, I think the group of us, it was quite a small group, maybe 10 or 12 or something. Um, quite a few of us got the bug. And it just happened that at that time, there were quite a few um, people joined the club who were super keen. So it just like built from there. So it was really exciting because you were kind of going up. You know, you had this cave caving club that was sort of dying and where all the knowledge had sort of gone left and and now you sort of feel like you've got the chance to resurrect things or to do things on your on your own i guess that's a bit long sorry but yeah so we we, 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 we went yeah we went out and we just um bimbled around i think i remember like we were just no good at even feeding ourselves one of one of the people there was vegetarian but didn't eat cheese and a couple of other things and this is like austria in the 1980s it was like <laughs> we just had to feed a carrot there was just nothing <laughs> like, like yeah and you couldn't there was no internet so you couldn't look things up uh there was you you were 
punching numbers into a calculator to try and do your surveying. So it was just um, a very different thing from now, I guess. Was it um, quite intimidating for you going with a group of cavers that weren't very like experienced in expedition? I guess we had no idea what expeditions were. Like for us, this was everything. This was, as far as we were concerned, this this was an expedition. We didn't realize we were like a rubbish expedition. Like we were the world's least competent expedition. <laughs> we just had no expectations because you wouldn't. Like you, we didn't, it's hard to explain now because everyone's so connected and you can look things up so easily. But we were in this little bubble so I didn't for years I didn't know anyone outside Cambridge caving club I might like bump into one or two people in a caving hut or occasionally like somebody would leave Cambridge and join another club and you know you might sort of hear second hand but I didn't have it's not like now where you're just chatting and constantly exchanging. So we had we didn't know what we were supposed to be doing and we didn't know how to find out. Um, so no, it wasn't particularly intimidating. I mean, we could have got ourselves into a right mess. We had no idea how to call the rescue, I don't think. And we had no idea how to rescue ourselves. Right. But yeah. we also didn't do anything very um, hardcore. Mm. For the most part, I think that that year we basically refound caves that Cambridge had found before and went down them a second time less competently than they had done the first time. <laughs> Sounds fun though. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so then, like, I know you've been going to uh, the Cambridge expeditions in the Loser Plateau for over thirty years, um, and you were on my first expedition there. So. That expedition has changed a lot since you're describing it now. So now there's a lot of um, like paperwork and surveying. Do you want to talk a little bit about the development of that expedition and like how much that paving system has grown over the years? It could be a very boring talk. <laughs> I think that's maybe <laughs> what puts people off. <laughs> maybe. Like... <laughs> Yeah, I think I think you, we realised gradually as we kept going back that it it wasn't going to work unless we had systems like for building the surveys together. You know, once you realise that what you've got is not like lots of separate small caves that you can explore one by one. Once you start realising that. The exciting thing is it's a massive maze with loads of different entrances and loads of different ways of getting to places. Then you realize that you're gonna to have to be systematic, but it's this very difficult balance of making it fun because who wants to spend their holiday doing something that feels harder than a real job? So like I know expedition caving has been a big focus for you and you've been to a lot of places and it would probably take a long time to list all of them. Are there any uh, particular places that you've been that have been particularly memorable for you? I think there's, there's lots for different reasons, often not the, the positive. So like things that are really well decorated or massive chambers or something like that are all very nice, but that's not what kind of floats my boat. So 
I remember going in this Chinese cave and realizing that these enormous gray boulders that I could see were massive bloated pig carcasses that were like filled with gas. Oh, and wow. the locals had obviously been trying to get rid of pigs that had died of something very, very bad because the locals would eat anything they possibly could. So the fact that they'd thrown all these pigs down this cave was not a good sign. And these pigs were vast and we had to sort of inch past them thinking like if this if this explodes on us or a cave another cave in China that was just full of syringes and nappies and you're sort of crawling through this so like you get things like that you remember or I did a cave in I went for a couple of weeks to Morocco just because someone kind of randomly emailed us and said come to Morocco and look at our caves we went with these two guys, local guys, we went with them and went caving and the entrances were kind of quite spectacular with all these birds like pigeons living in them. And as we went down, the, the birds all kind of flew out scared. So it was like some kind of horror movie. And then we finished caving quite late and we were walking back. So we came out of the cave and we had our headlights on because it was light and we got so far and suddenly there was these rock like hit one of our heads <laughs> like what the hell and then another one and we realized someone was throwing rocks like very hard and very accurately so you put your lights off and start crawling away and then the Moroccan guys started shouting and shouting and it turned out the next morning that there was a woman on her own in a little hut and she'd seen these spirits coming up out of the cave, these like lights coming, looming towards us. And she was absolutely terrified. And her job was like a goat herder. So she herded her goats by throwing rocks at them. So she had a bloody amazing right arm. So she was just like hitting these stones at a massive rate and like bang on target at, at us. So we were both afraid of each other so there's loads of so those kind of stories are the things where something's disgusting or something's terrifying <laughs> or something's really surprising those are the things that kind of stick with you I guess yeah I mean I've been stuck with floods quite a few times that that's quite memorable like just shivering for hour after hour after hour and stressing because you've missed your call out and you're Oh, I hope they realise it's just the water. I hope they don't come and try and find us and drown. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then with your expeditions, you've also done some with uh, like local cavers. I know you have in Russia and in Austria as well. How would the like, was that a different experience for you caving with like non-British cavers? I think I've got to say the biggest difference. So I've I've done a week going with Julia um, with Spanish cavers, a week underground camp, and then I did a couple of trips with Russian cavers. And the only other non-Russian was a German woman. And then I've done quite a few trips with the Austrians, different configurations. But again, often I was the only non native German speaker and the biggest difference is just language because people I guess unless you're really pushy and just like constantly asking people to translate people just chatter away uh, gossip whatever hour after hour at camp or or wherever 
and my languages aren't great in any of those and my Spanish my Russian my German's all pretty bad my German's the best of the lot but it's like asking for a train ticket type German it's not you know sexual innuendo or the latest politics or anything like that I'm just not going to follow so you spend a lot of time and, and almost all these trips have been underground camping trips so the ones in Abkhazia with the Russians the longest one was three weeks underground so yeah it's a long time to not talk to anyone else mm-hmm. so it's a weird sort of isolating experience more than anything because you're in your own head and you can start getting I don't know a little bit paranoid or a little bit bored or or something and it it can be quite a head game for the Russian trip it was going to be down this deep cave and I knew that they were like really strong cavers and they carry loads of gear so for the two or three months before I did loads of uh, exercise like loads and loads of um, exercise classes and things and I was like really good biceps and really really strong and fit because I was like you know determined not to 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 be too pathetic and then it turned out in the end that the biggest issue for me was this mental thing like um just holding it together when you weren't sure what was happening and when things were being decided that you didn't you prefer not to be decided you know you wanted something else to happen but you had no agency like the Russian way of doing things is that you have a very strong leader who decides what's happening there's there's not very much um sort of opportunity for people discussing what they're doing and particularly if you don't if if you can't communicate properly then I couldn't even even if I'd wanted to I don't think I could have tried to persuade them because for the most part their English just wasn't enough we could understand enough to sort of say what we were doing and the plans were and don't go there and do do this but it couldn't you you kind of <laughs> when you need to you realize like how much you're lo- you're lacking um, right. from being able to speak fluently right. and that I found absolutely I, I nearly cracked I think I was like find it really hard how how did you actually deal with it then um <laughs> just push through wrote like hours in a diary and um, thought too much probably um and just there was absolutely no option like I'm underground away underground and even if I got out of the cave I'm in this kind of country with no functioning state basically like uh we needed the russians to sort of help us to just even move anywhere it wasn't safe so it's it's like a yeah so you you could just go and do stuff on your own i'd have ended up like out of the cave on the side of a a mountain in the middle of the winter uh, with no way to get myself to anywhere and anywhere sensible so yeah, so I had to sort of stick with it. It wasn't that bad, but um, it was it it felt fairly extreme, I think. 
yeah well I think in retrospect you can look back and say like oh I dealt with it it wasn't that bad but because you aren't able to leave that amplifies anything you worrying about it getting worse so it it makes sense and I can't really imagine like also being disoriented with like not having any natural light and scheduling and it couldn't add up quite easily yeah and and some of that was like how they did things so they made no attempt to stick with 24-hour days so some of our days were super short and some of the days were unbelievably long and I never knew what kind of day it was going to be and I never knew when we were going to eat or what we were doing and it's just you don't want to be that person that's like right what we're doing next (laughs) you you want to be this sort of self-reliant whatever and maybe and and even if I asked them what we were doing they they often couldn't explain or they'd say you know we're we're having lunch in five hours and then like eight hours later we've not eaten anything (laughs) oh no (laughs) yeah I would not deal well in that situation (laughs) how did you get in contact with the the Russian cavers to go on this expedition so yeah so the I knew I got to Russia because of like a two-step thing so I'd done um being in the Cambridge and doing the Austrian expeditions we'd got to know local Austrian cavers because we talk to them every year and um Robert Zabacker kind of is the head of the local club and we'd uh, tell him what we were doing and one year he invited me to go on their club's expedition and I did that for several years I've done that for over a decade now I think so I've been on maybe 10 trips with them and on one of these trips Paulina who's a German but living in Austria she was there and she said oh I did this amazing trip uh, to uh, Russia because I made a, a, a pact with myself that if someone asked me invited me on something I'd say yes didn't matter what it was I'd just say yes um, and she's quite um, she's an amazing woman she's like in a early 30s I guess and she's but she she runs an expedition in Austria and she's like very keen on caving anyway so she went off to um, Abkhazia all by herself completely by herself knowing nobody there um, and spent the summer with something like you know 20 male Russians maybe those are the odd woman but uh, and just got on with it I remember saying something like maybe they'd gone down to camp for the first time and they got to camp uh, and they put the tents up and the stuff and then they got the food out and said so what so so here's what you're cooking and she said I'm here for a caving expedition I am not here to cook for you <laughs> it's just like um, lay that out there yeah because <laughs> otherwise um yeah you'd end up with quite uh standard sex roles let's say yeah that to you when you went then (laughs) I was a total scaredy cat I just did whatever I was told uh so you've obviously accomplished a lot abroad um but you've also recently completed 50 of the caving trips that are listed in the little black book or the book that not for the faint-hearted uh 
Could you describe uh, what this involved and maybe explain what motivated you to do all of these trips? So I think it came out in, I looked it up, 2006, uh, Not for the Faint Hearted. It's a book by Mike Cooper of um, 50 of the like, harder caves in the Dales um, that he put together. Um, and I've bought the book because everyone was buying the book um, and I'd already done quite a few of the trips just like through my caving career but when um, I got it I started kind of ticking things off if I happened to do a trip just from my normal caving um, and I got about halfway through my trips like that like not actually intending to tick and then I can't remember it started like getting slightly more sort of purposeful, not through any choice of my own. I just like, it just started niggling. And that would be my advice. Like you need to really think twice about what, what your purpose is because um, um, I'm really not sure I'd have put myself through it if I, if I hadn't like got obsessed before the point at which I could say no. But anyway, so then I started like seriously trying to do more of them and I got most of the way through and then you you realize that you're fighting time because I'm getting on a bit and I was thinking oh god I'm going to be left with like three obsessing me as, as I get like way too decrepit to do it and the problem with the later ones as well they tend to also be the ones that are like flood prone and you need weeks of settled weather so they're not only hard to do you need to get the right companions because there's like maybe they've got tight squeezes and it's really frustrating going along to something and then you bloody person you're with can't get through and you gotta go back again or they needed like yeah loads of settled weather so i think i did in 2014 i did quaking which um I mentally decided at least 10 years before that I was never going to do that. I'd, I'd deliberately parked it because I didn't want that kind of hanging over me that, oh, it'd be really good to like do quaking before I'm too past it. And like, yeah, like I said, in my early 40s, I thought that is gone. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. But anyway, I did a trip with um, Noel Snape and um, Holly Bradley um, and Ian Peachy. And we got to the bottom. Um, and when I did that, I kind of thought, well, maybe I can do it. So then it was like the last set. Um, I think P5 took P5 took quite a lot. It hadn't been done, I don't think, for a while, and it needed digging out. And then after I got it dug out, the people I was with wouldn't fit through. So I did that with Noel as well. Um, and then I think the last two, something like that, was um, Living Dead Extensions with in Pennygent Pot, which I did with George, George Braley. And that was another that I was, I think that was the last one that I was really thinking I might not do because I didn't know many people at all who'd done it. And it right. was quite intimidating. It's lots and lots of very low airspace crawling. And then it turned out, like squeezes were that were like George, he got stuck in it and he's not big. 
but you're no. wearing massive amounts of neoprene, so you're like super um, bulked up. So he, he took his uh, neoprene jacket off. There's no way I was, because you spend the whole time pretty much hypothermic. You're pretty much sort of shivering. And that's really um, preying on you because you're thinking, well, if something goes wrong, I'm not just like sitting it out waiting for someone to fetch me. That, that's me. Like, you know, I'm going to get hypothermia here. I've not got much. So I did that. And then I only had one to do. Um, and I had, uh, so which is Mossdale. And uh, I'd only ever done a little bit of digging in Mossdale, not very far in. So I didn't, didn't know it. Um, and I had Andrew Atkinson lined up, but then he pulled out. And then I had George and um, Rob lined up, and then they bloody pulled through in Lost John's down the wrong route and got stuck <laughs> oh, and had yeah. to be rescued. They were like there overnight. So then they yeah. were like, "Oh, I don't think I don't think we can really like uh, go midweek, like two days later, to do Mossdale because you know uh, we better just like lay low." And then I tried like Julia and my partner, who by that time pretty much retired from caving and was like really not persuaded. I said, God, you can do it, please, please, please. And then I just thought, I'm gonna have to do it by myself because if I don't do it this week, I'm going to Austria. And then when I come back, I'm gonna be too old and the weather's gonna have changed and I'm never gonna do it. So I did it solo, which is quite, um, it's quite a weird way to finish but it actually felt quite sort of right because you're just there in your head and yeah but I remember thinking so that it's mostly okay it's like horizontal so there's nowhere to fall or anything but there's both of the extreme ends of it there's quite tight awkwardy squeezy things so that I wasn't really sure if I was in the right place and by then, it had completely bitten me, this thing. I, I, I'm on the 50th. I, like, I have to finish now because it's the right time and it's going to flood and I haven't got anyone else to go. And then I was like desperate to find the ends of this cave to get my tick. And I remember saying literally out loud, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this because I thought I might like force myself to do something really dumb and end up, you know, busting an ankle or something and being stuck in there because, because I got obsessed. Like, you can really see how people make bad judgment calls. Anyway, I, I did it. And, and having done it, like, I'm now really pleased. But, um, yeah, I'm not sure I would have ever chosen it willingly if it had been laid out at the start. It's really inspiring to hear that, especially the fact that you did the final one by yourself. I can't even imagine doing any of those as a solo trip. So yeah, that's really amazing. And congratulations for finishing. I, I didn't want to do it as a solo trip, I should make clear. <laughs> nobody would come with me. It was like definitely the last choice. But having done it, it yeah, it felt right. So I know other than your 50 black books, you've also done a lot of exploration in the UK, especially in the three county system, um, like you were involved in large pot uh, when the Eastern Front was discovered. Can you talk a bit about your exploration in the three counties? Yeah, so a lot of that was done with someone called Neil Pacey, 
um, who's a brilliant red rose caver. Um, and he he's someone who really has a kind of uh, drive for exploration. And he's also um, someone who's really good at misery caving. So I think that's why he's been very successful because uh, there's lots of people who don't mind doing, you know, nice big surface digs with dry shake holes and uh, he can whip back to the car. Whereas Neil has always been one who's quite willing to crawl for two or three hours and then wallow around in mud and squalor. And then uh, that makes it a lot easier to find things because not so many people are willing to do that. So like the Eastern Front, um, uh, we did had a breakthrough in 2013, and that was Neil and quite surprisingly Julian, my partner, who's not known for his love of caving. But anyway, um, it was um, a very squalid sump we were digging out, and he was like a what do you call it, a pig in a uh, pig in clover. Anyway, he just loved it, like rolling around in the mud. And uh, Sam, all Sean, and Beardy. Um, so they were brilliant trips, like really good fun. It's quite social quite grueling and um, we thought it was a complete no-hoper but it turned out that nobody else had really um, tried digging at it I think because it was quite a long way in and it looked such a no-hoper um, but I think more impressive maybe was the stuff that um, I helped Neil with in IRB and connecting IRB to Rift which was like years and years of effort to try and get this whole set of connections. So Neil pushed from um, Cripple Creek, a dry uh, connection to IB2 the, the, through the sump bit of IB, and also um, helped out with a whirlpool um, crawl dig that uh, was a second dry way into IB2 and other stuff in IB, like patching the whole network, a bit like you would do in Expedition Caving if you were abroad, but his passion was like this. He, he said to me something like, he'd been on expedition to China and he'd spent all day in this massive borehole passage, like um, surveying huge, beautiful new passage. And he said, do you know what, Becca? And in my dreams, I was dreaming of IRB. <laughs> like it's, uh, you know that that's where it was and and i think it's true of a lot of cavers that you it's not really physically where it is or how beautiful it is it's like what it means to you and that was the thing that had him and that's where he wanted to find things and that's where he did find stuff and because he was doing all the uh the pushing he'd always been like one of these people who you have to record stuff so he would survey was going in and that meant that we kind of started building up quite a lot of surveys of the chunks of these caves and that turned into this big survey project that I'm still doing that I've kind of stalled on but surveying um, Leckfell caves and trying to put them all together so that's been kind of a bit of a slow burn project. Do you feel like um, because of the amount of effort you've had to put into the the exploration in the dales that like it's more meaningful to you i mean like per meter you definitely get a lot more satisfaction in yorkshire but um 
I don't know. There's something very grand in Austria about like being the first one down a 50 meter pitch or something like that, or in a massive great shaft. But unless you're supremely lucky, you're never going to get that in Yorkshire. Right. Um, but you are going to get this kind of satisfaction of, I don't know, piecing this jigsaw together, I guess. So that. You know, like like Neil came out to Austria a few times and he loved the Austrian caving, but it was it was still the same person there. So he did the same small bit of one cave in Austria in Tunnockshacht, like three years running. And then when we stopped going to that bit, he just like, oh, I don't think I'm coming back anymore. Like I'm like that that was his project. And once that was finished, he was like blinkered, you know, the whole of the rest of the plateau was there for him. And he was, oh but what would I do with this new bit of cave, you know? Right. (laughs) Whereas I've been, I the people are different. I'm a butterfly. I love going to different things. So if I go to the Cambridge Austria expedition, I wanna like have trips in all the fronts that are open up. So if there's like two or three caves going, I will slog my caving gear from entrance to entrance and go to all of them because and, and I'm the same with digs in Yorkshire. Like some people will do 100 trips or 200 trips or 300 trips into the same sodding cave, like inching forwards. And they're just like not at all interested in anything else. Mm-hmm. Like Richard Bendel, if you know him, he's, there's like popular caves in Yorkshire that he's never been in because like, why would you unless you're, it's part of your digging project? Right. But um, that, that's just not me. I think some of it might be because Richard Bendel's got this amazing kind of photographic memory of everywhere he went. And the one thing that I am absolutely famous for is having an unbelievably bad memory. So to me, it's all fresh. So, you know, I'm I'm happy going to like new places all the time, whereas maybe he just feels, you know, he needs to progress with his project. So how do you think uh, it compares like your exploration caving compared to your sport caving? Do you feel like... um one of those is more important or I don't know (laughs) these questions deteriorate as I ask them (laughs) I'm trying to ask um, I think think one one of your questions on your list which I quite liked was um what is it about caving that keeps you coming back for more which is like sort of related so I kind of thought about that because when I hear people say that they say like why why are you still caving because a lot of people um kind of grow out of um sport caving and they kind of oh I've done that and then they think well if I'm going to keep caving I've got to do something else like cave photography or expedition caving or whatever and I don't think I've ever felt that um and a lot of people say things like oh I still want to go caving but it's for the people it's for the company and like the ca- it's all about if I go on expedition being with people who are my mates and to me, I've never, that's never made sense to me because, like, if you're doing it because you want to be with people, why don't you just go walking or climbing or something like that? Much more pleasant, you know? Why don't you just sit in the pub with them? So for me, um, it's not that I don't like the company. I love my caving friends, but it wouldn't be the same if I wasn't caving. I still love, like, actually the physically going caving. I still really, really like um 
crawling and pussicking and seeing new stuff and prodding my head like around a corner or something like I can't imagine anything better than doing you know a 12 14 hour trip and prosecuting out of, on the entrance pitch with a massive bag with all your detackled muddy rope with you where you've been on some totally over ambitious kind of push survey de-rig trip and then you you like stagger back to camp and you're hydrating yourself and eating and and kind of looking at the stars and that feeling of your in your body that you've just got pretty much to the edge and then you're kind of yeah you've got it got to kind of the edge of what you can do and then um i've been distracted <laughs> got to the edge of what you can do and then that feeling of like coming back from exhaustion so you know you've got your fluffy sleeping bag there and you've got the food that you're going to eat there and the drink and you're warming up and you've managed to take your disgusting clothes off i could give you a story actually like the worst almost the worst thing in this abkhazia trip the first time i did it <clears throat> we, so we were at like the end of this three weeks underground and we were going to come out um but for whatever reason they decided we were going to come out that leader was going to go out first and then i was going to go out with these two massive tackle bags and then the three others were cleaning up camp and then they would come out so I came out and the bags were like really heavy and the entrance was really kind of awkward and tight and had squeezes and loose bits and things and it was really knackered you had these two little chocolate bars like running out of food and it was I don't know it took me about eight hours or something to get up on my own the whole time and I could feel my body gradually getting colder even though I was working really hard all the way up it's a wet cold cave you're in the draft the whole time I'd eaten my food and I was just like gradually getting weaker but then again towards the entrance and it's getting colder and colder there's this air flooding in and the last two little pictures had like ice on them, or like underground, but there was ice because of the cold air flowing through. And the next to last pitch, um, I could see it was tight and I was getting really tired and cold. And I thought, well, I'll just kind of go for it and I'll be able to just like pull the bags one after the other. And I got like three quarters through, worst bit, and the bags back jammed. And I thought, I could die here. Like, I'm in this like icy, freezing cold position and I'm stuck on the rope. I'm like, I'm wedged. And, and so I'm actually with a ginormous push to try and get through, thinking this is all or nothing. Because if, if, if it just, just get more wedged, then that is really bad, bad news. And I got through. So then I get out <clears throat> into the snow and you go to the camp. And I was so cold, I couldn't get my gear off couldn't get my SRT kit off and I was so close to that like being able to be safe I could see the tent now it's nice and warm and they had a fire outside and there's all these Russians ignoring me and I was just like wandering around trying to get bits off but my hands were so cold and the SRT stuff was all kind of wet and frozen and in the end, these uh, Russian women finally spotted what was happening and just took my harness off for me. But without that, I think I'd have been like stuck. 
Facebook. <laughs> like, you were too fucking proud to sort of say, help! <laughs> but yeah, so that's an example of like how extreme it is. But then like once you start warming up, you're thinking, I'm going to make it, hallelujah. And you've had that experience. That's not going to go away. It's really hard to explain to people who haven't been in that situation uh, the, the bliss you feel that you're still alive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and maybe not everyone feels it. Maybe it's just <laughs> me. Maybe that's just a weird, like, sadomasochistic kind of thing that I quite like, the extremes. But for me, the idea of hell would be living in a quite nice house that's quite warm, doing a quite okay job and going down the pub. It's just like meandering along at that level. It's like... So we've spoken a lot about um, some of your achievements and I guess a nice question to close on is what's next for you in caving? Um, I think I mentioned that I hadn't finished the, this big project of resurveying on Lake Fell. I think I'm like too old for a new project maybe. So. No. <laughs> So, well, like, I am, I am, if I can at, get to Austria this summer, I'm going to Austria and I'm going to go with the Cambridge to Austria and I'm hoping to go with the Austrians to Austria as well. But I've got this resurvey project I want to do. Like, I'm in the North Wales Caving Club. They want to be out digging. So I'm going to be doing that. I've been asking Richard Bendel what his digging projects are. So... I would really like to go further afield. I've been trying to sort of weevil my way onto some more exotic trips to exotic places, but I'm trying not to fly as well. So there's a bit of a tension there. So I don't know what I'll do about that. But there's plenty of places I've never been that are amazing uh, caving wise. So although I've been lucky enough to do a lot of caving abroad, there's plenty of places I'd like to go. I, I don't know whether COVID's going to, screw things up all this stuff that we thought was just taking for granted that we'd be able to zip around the world and yeah mingle with people easily and that kind of thing um and also like i've done a lot of caving in some places like china which i think now is really tightening up on access and i could see that happening as well i think in the 70s 80s 90s it was basically a free for all and it's got harder to just turn up, maybe for good reason. Maybe it's not great that you're like 21st century colonialists sort of uh, rampaging all over someone's land. But uh, practically speaking, it's it's a lot trickier now, I think, in many cases to go to places to find new cave. Um, but I think um, I'm... I can be happy with like um, a small squalid dig, really. I, I like caving. I like cavers. So it doesn't need to be something kind of big and ambitious and show-stopping. Um, so, yeah, but I will be caving, I think. So as long as you're tired, muddy and cold at the end, you're happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can be tired, well, muddy, and warm. That's a nice change. I've, I've, I've rung the changes before now. Right. Well, thank you so much, Becca, for giving us your time and sharing 
uh, just a fraction of your wide caving experience. We really appreciate it. I enjoyed it, actually. I, I had quite a nice time this afternoon just um, trying to kind of work out what I had done. So, yeah, it was kind of interesting. Thank you again to Becca Lawson for letting us listen to all of her experiences. Uh, we hope to see you all next time. Thanks for listening.